0: Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Leviticus chapter number 10. The book of Leviticus chapter 10. And as you're turning to the 10th chapter of Leviticus, let me once again ask the questions we've been considering over the last few weeks regarding the subject of of worship Does God care how we worship him Is there a right way to worship God Is there a wrong way to worship God If so what are the standards and the guidelines of worship Is God open to any and all expressions of worship Do we have the freedom to include What we like or what we think is best in worship? Do we have the liberty to decide how we approach God in worship? Are there principles the practices of worship ought to be funneled through? Are styles of worship a matter of one's preferences or denomination? Is one's sincerity the most important element of worship? Are one's feelings the most important element of worship? How about fun and entertainment? Should our methods of worship be determined by someone's personal gratification? And then, who sets the standards for worship? Who says that some things are accepted in worship and other things are not? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? And by now, I'm hoping that as these questions are rehearsed in your hearing, that your hearts and minds instantaneously cry out the correct answers. Namely, without a doubt, God cares how we worship. Without question, there are standards, guidelines, and principles that ought to regulate our worship of God. And by no means... Do sinful finite men have the freedom or liberty to include what they like or what they think is best in worshiping the holy infinite creator? Because the holy infinite creator through his word has clearly articulated how he ought to be worshiped. God in Christ says in John 4:24 that God is a spirit And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him from the heart according to the way that He has prescribed in His word. This means then that there is an authoritative standard that ought to order and influence the way in which we worship God. Jesus is teaching us in John 4 24 that our worship of the Father ought to be suitable to his person and agreeable to his will. In other words, we ought to worship God according to his preferences, not ours. And by way of showing you that what Jesus says is true and is in perfect agreement with the entirety of Scripture, it has been my aim to highlight specific instances from God's Word that demonstrate that worship toward God is not a secondary issue. Listen, if you get only one truth out of this series of messages, I hope you will come to realize that God is jealous For pure worship because God has a zeal for his own glory. How God is thought about. How God is approached. How God is worshipped. How God is served. How God is talked about. How God is represented to the lost world by his people is of utmost importance to God. So if there's one principle that I can cement on the table of your heart and the forefront of your mind, it is the truth that God's work is to be done in God's way. And God's work is done in God's way when it is an agreement to God's will that is articulated in God's word. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, having clarified these truths for us once again, in the time that we have together tonight, I want to examine an occasion in which two men were severely judged by God because, like Israel in Exodus 32, they wanted to worship God in their own way, according to their own carnal desires. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we have the written record of Nadab and Abihu offering things to God which God never commanded them. The title of tonight's sermon is The Deadly Danger of Will Worship. The Deadly Danger of will worship. Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, beginning with a thorough examination of these two verses, I want us to observe and consider four important realities regarding the two men mentioned in this portion of Scripture. Beginning with the first eight words, I want us to begin by having us consider the persons of the text, the persons of the text. And by this I mean, who Nadab and Abihu were. Who are the persons that are explicitly mentioned in Leviticus chapter 10, verse number 1? Well, beginning with the obvious facts of the text, and then working our way to the not-so-obvious facts of the text, Let me begin by noting that these two men were first and foremost believing Israelites. They were individual citizens of God's holy nation who were led out of bondage from Egypt. And from what we can perceive... In God's word and from what we know about God's character in choosing men for ministry positions, I think it is safe to say that Nadab and Abihu were true believers, not merely affiliated with God in a national ethnic sense like some, but they were united with God in a personal saving sense. These two men were not just professors of faith, they were possessors of faith. Nadab and Abihu were believing Israelites. They were the true Israel of God. They were Israelites who belonged to Israel. And moving on, we read that Nadab and Abihu were not only believing Israelites. The Bible tells us that they were the eldest sons of Aaron. And this is what Leviticus 10 verse 1 says. Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, who was Moses' spokesperson, Moses' assistant, and Moses' brother. Which means that these two men were Moses' nephews. Are you tracking thus far? Not only were they Israelites... Not only were they believing Israelites, who were the sons of Aaron, God's appointed high priest, not only were they the nephews of God's appointed shepherd, leader, and preacher of God's covenant people, Nadab and Abihu were priests. They were servants of the Most High God. So let's recap for a moment. Who were Nadab and Abihu? The two men mentioned in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, they were Hebrew Christians. They were the sons and nephews of God-appointed leaders who were given an unusual opportunity to serve as ministers in God's tabernacle, the place where God met with His people. And to summarize everything I've just said in a concise statement, Nadab and Abihu, were respectable men who were God-appointed and God-fearing leaders among Israel. Did you catch that? These men were not Egyptian spiritualists who were part of the mixed multitude who followed Israel across the Red Sea. These two men were not religious rogues who enjoyed stirring up trouble for their father and uncle. These two men were not wicked men from a neighboring nation who were, as we called, snake oil salespeople. Neither were they new converts to the Christian faith who were ignorant to the truths of God's word. The Bible tells us that prior to this instance, recorded in Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2, these men were individuals of exceptional, godly character. And intertwined with this first consideration is the second consideration. Having contemplated truths regarding who they were, I want us to think about what they experienced prior to this moment. So in point number one, we have the people referred to in our text. Point number two, I want us to think of their privileges. And if you will... Keep your place here and turn back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. In addition to being raised in a home where the truths of God were taught, in addition to being related to God's chosen shepherd Moses and God's chosen high priest Aaron, in addition to seeing all the miracles God did in bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt, The Bible tells us that Nadab and Abihu were privileged to see God upon the mount alongside Moses, Aaron, and 70 elders. Exodus 24, verse 1. And he, God, said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou, and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And worship ye afar off. And then jumping down to verse 9 of Exodus 24. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, as it were the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. Are you beginning to grasp how gracious God was to these two men? Nadab and Abihu had privileges and blessings that most people did not have. Nadab and Abihu had been closer to God than almost anyone. Which again indicates that these men seemed to be righteous, honorable, loyal servants of God. And speaking of privileges, just prior to what we read in the first two verses of Leviticus 10, in Leviticus 9, we read that Nadab and Abihu watched as their father Aaron offered the first sin offering ever made in the tabernacle which was concluded in God revealing his glory to his people and God's people falling on their faces in reverence and godly fear. Leviticus nine, twenty-three and 24. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Aaron did what God wanted him to do. God was pleased. God was glorified among the people. And Nadab and Abihu had front row seats in seeing God's blessing. And then comes point number three. In chapter 10, which is their presumptuous practice. Their presumptuous practice. Point number one, we see the persons. Point number two, we see their privileges. Point number three, we see their presumptuous practice. Notice it again, Nadab and Abihu, The sons of Aaron took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange, unauthorized, fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And while various authors and commentators try to unravel the mysteries regarding the exact nature of this strange fire. The truth is, it is not specifically recorded in God's Word. It could be that Nadab and Abihu were burning the incense with fire of their own making. It could be that Nadab and Abihu had taken fire from within the camp of Israel. But it really makes no difference as to where they got this fire because that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that they used something other than the fire God himself had ignited. Rather than taking fire from the altar, as specified by God in Leviticus chapter 16, they foolishly presumed that God would be satisfied with anything that was offered to him. So then the question becomes... Why did they do this? Something that the command in verse 9, not to drink alcohol, suggests that perhaps Nadab and Abihu's judgment was impaired by drinking alcoholic drinks prior to their offering sacrifice. But again, that's all speculation. Verse 1 specifically says that The heart of the problem lied in their doing what God commanded them not to do. This is why they did what they did. They presumed that God would be okay with doing ministry different than what he ordained. The essence of their sin was that they approached God in a careless, self-willed, inappropriate manner. Verse 1 is highlighting the fact that Nadab and Abihu deliberately disregarded the need to worship God in reverence and godly fear. They came to God in an unauthorized way according to their preferences. They wanted to jazz up the worship of God a little bit. They thought, Fire is fire, right? I mean, so long as it is hot and so long as it glows, what does it matter? It's not a big deal, is it? Well, let's find out. Is it a big deal? Verse number two. Point number four, their punishment. And there went out fire from the Lord. And devoured them. And they died. Before the Lord. God struck Nadab and Abihu dead. With a blast of holy fire. Remember it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. You reap. What you sow. The Lord's response to their foolish actions was swift death. And God wanted to show all of Israel that God's holy name will not be mocked in worship. God is teaching us that He is jealous for His own glory. God takes His work seriously. Especially the work that is, to be a picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Especially the work that represents the truths of the gospel. So there's the explanation of the text. We've examined who Nadab and Abihu were, what gracious privileges they were given by the Lord. We've examined the essence of their sin, as well as their swift punishment by God. Now, in the remainder of our time, I want to take these two verses and consider the obvious ways this particular instance applies to how God is worshipped among many churches today. And let me remind you that God tells us in the New Testament that that which has been recorded for us in the Old Testament was written for our warning and our learning. While we may not be physical Israel, a nation of people, partaking in old sacrificial systems, God is teaching us that there are biblical principles, there are lessons embedded within this text that ought to influence how we worship God. So five lessons of considerations from Nadab and Abihu's defiant and deadly sacrifice that was offered to God. Lesson number one is the repeated lesson that stems from Jesus' own lips in John 4, 24. I'll say it again. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Translation, God is to be worshipped in the way he has prescribed in his word. And this is the fundamental problem of Nadab and Abihu's worship. They did not worship God as he commanded them. They were not worshipping God biblically. They wanted to worship God in their own way according to their own carnal desires. And this, as I've been saying, is the greatest problem facing Christianity today. The greatest problem facing Christianity today is a blatant disregard of obeying God's word in the matter of worship. Now let's examine it from what we've considered over the last several weeks. Let's examine it from those things that we might mark as extreme, and then we'll look at those things that we accept in our, quote, conservative, quote, Bible-believing churches. Here it is. I'll set the Word of God up to us. Where in the Bible do we find instances of the Holy Spirit causing people to bark like dogs, flounder on the floor like a fish, or speak gibberish language that cannot be understood by anyone? Where in the Bible do we find Homosexual men being ordained as pastors. Where in the Bible do we find God commending and approving of women being pastors and preachers? Where in the Bible do we find God supporting God's people mimicking the world's music styles in worship? Where do we find any instance of people jumping around, banging their head and shaking their hips in a fleshly way in the dark, with bright lights and fog machines? The answer is you don't. Such things are unauthorized. Such things are foreign. Such things are profane. They are practices that are added to God's Word, not derived from God's Word. Strange fire happening in the worship of God. Okay, those are extreme examples Those are practices not found in our affiliations, our circles, so let's bring it closer to home, shall we? Where in the Bible do we find entertainment being a driving force of Christ's church? Where in the Bible do we find instances of Noah dressing up like the Easter bunny to allure people to come into the ark? Where do we find instances of the apostles dressing up like Santa Claus and Santa's little helpers to evangelize the community? Where do we find Paul telling Timothy that it's needful for Timothy to make sure that he organizes plenty of social activities for people to enjoy at the church? Where do we read of donut walls, coffee stands, Disney characters being Dressed up by the deacons. Okay, they didn't have Disney. Where do we read of Roman gods coming into the church so the world could be run? Where do we find the petting zoos? Where do we find the first century church employing dunk tanks, face paintings, giveaways, less preaching, more humor, and more music in the worship and service of the local church? Where do we read of God's people canceling church on the Lord's Day so they can have plenty of time to be with family on the holidays. Come on, give me a verse, give me a chapter, give me an example. Give me at least a slight suggestion of anyone of these things being used in the work of the Lord during 4,000 years of Christian ministry. Where did God say, go ye into all the world and become a hot dog for people to laugh at? Go ye into all the world and dress up like Super Mario Brothers. Go ye into all the world and have a circus at your church next week. Where? It's not there. All these things are strange to God. Much of what we employ in our worship is unauthorized and profane. And listen, herein lies our problem. We say that the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice, but we live... As if it's not. We say that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, but we depend upon carnal gimmicks to win people to the Lord. We say that it is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone who gives the increase into Christ's kingdom while we use unholy methods to stir up people and making decisions based on emotions. We say that God's work is to be done in God's way, and then we go about doing God's work in our own way. Our problem is we're spiritually schizophrenic. We're bipolar Baptists. And sadly, we're nothing more than disciples of Satan. Remember, it was Satan who tempted Adam and Eve by saying, did God really say did God really? And that's exactly what we're saying in the context of Christ church as it relates to worship. Did God really say we can't do this and can't do that? I mean, God doesn't mean what He says. We can do whatever it takes to make people happy, God knows if we employ such worldly methods, we can be a success. Listen, Satan is a liar, Satan is a thief, and Satan is a destroyer. And the way I see it, much of what is taking place among so-called churches is nothing but satanic counterfeit worship. Now don't forget, don't forget that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. You know that doctrinally, but look at it practically. Not everything that slaps the name of Jesus on it is of Jesus. There are strange lights, strange fires, strange worship, false Christ, false gospels, unbiblical truths. Remember Paul says we are not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. We are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. And that's why I'm presenting these things to you in our series on discernment so we don't become ignorant to Satan's method of calling us away from Christ. Do you realize that there is nothing Satan loves more than to see God's people become innovative in worship? What is Satan's goal? Genesis 3. Satan's goal is to cause us to defy God. Satan's goal is to cause us to question God's authority. And he won it with Nadab and Abihu. Did God really say, come on, we can just improvise just a little bit. Lesson number one, God is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Lesson number two, God abhors will worship. God abhors will worship. And we see that here in our text. We saw it last week in Exodus chapter 32 when the people of God called on Aaron to make a calf, and the people rose up, went out, and played. And we see it in Samuel's rebuke toward King Saul. God hates when men worship and serve him in their own way. He hates it when men and women worship and serve him casually, flippantly, and unbiblically. God despises innovation in worship. And this spirit is exactly what is permeating our churches today Listen, rather than giving ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, rather than desiring biblically qualified pastors who will declare to us, thus saith the Lord, rather than demanding God's church to be a holy place of worship, rather than waiting on God's spirit to add to his church in his own time, we say to ourselves, well, that was then, this is now. Things have changed. The old way seems boring to others. The old ways are out of touch with reality. People want fun. My peers are having success in ministry doing fill in the blank. So we jazz up worship by giving lost and carnal people what they want in worship rather than employing God's ordained ways. If Leviticus 10:1 and 2 teaches us one thing, it teaches us that God hates will worship. Fleshly worship is an abomination to the Lord. Truth number three. God's ministers and God's people know better than to worship God in a way that is not prescribed. What does Leviticus 10, 1 and 2 teach us? What does God want us to learn In the death of Nadab and Abihu, he wants us to learn that God's ministers and God's people know better than to worship God in a way that is not prescribed. Can we all agree that Nadab and Abihu knew better than to offer God unauthorized fire? Can we all agree that they were not ignorant to what God wanted them to do? They were not unaware of God's commands. They knew what God required, yet in their pride, they worship God how they wanted it. And so it is today. Listen, you cannot convince me that church leaders who graduate from seminary, who read and preach from the Bible, don't know better. You cannot convince me that, quote, women preachers can't understand the Bible when it clearly says, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man and that a pastor must be the husband of one wife. You can't convince me that pastors don't know better than to dress up like Super Mario and having a Super Mario Sunday. They know better And they know from studying church history that such methods were never employed during true revivals. They know. And just as Adam and Eve knew better than to listen to Satan And eat of the tree that God told them not to. Just as Abraham knew better than to go to Hagar, just as Aaron and Israel in Exodus 32 knew better than to worship a golden calf, just as Nadab and Abihu knew better than to offer unauthorized fire, leaders among churches today know better. It's time we stop excusing them, it's time that we start holding them accountable. Oh, but there's a whisper, I hear it. Pastor, they really love Jesus. Jesus says, if someone truly loves me, he will keep my commandments. And my fear is that they love a false Jesus, not the biblical Jesus. They love the American Jesus. They love the Republican Jesus. They love the feel-good, all-accepting Jesus, not the King of kings and Lord of lords. They love the Jesus who they can lean on during hard times and cast away during prosperous times. They don't love the Jesus who calls them to live holy, dedicated lives. Well, there's another whisper, I hear it. But, Pastor, they are sincere. I don't doubt that. But they are sincerely wrong. Do you know how many people are in hell now because they were sincere? God doesn't judge things by our sincerity. He judges based on faithfulness to His word. And listen, if God the Holy Spirit is truly in these leaders who you claim to love Jesus and are sincere, then they know what is right and wrong because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And when they do wrong, when they go against God's command, the Spirit of truth will grieve the hearts of God's people when they stray. God's ministers, God's people know better than to worship God in a way that is not prescribed. Our problem is we just get used to the tradition. We just get used to how people say it should be. We get lost in the machine and we think that God is accepting of it. We don't question it. We don't stop and think about it. We don't go back to the word and say, is this the best and the right way? We just go with it and go with it and go with it. Lesson number four. God-fearing men and God-fearing churches are not exempt from falling. What does Leviticus 10, 1 and 2 teach us? It teaches us that God-fearing men and God-fearing churches are not exempt from falling. If Nadab and Abihu were holy, respectable men who experienced God's unique blessings could give way to such senselessness, Surely, well-respected, godly pastors, churches, and Christians can fall prey to the same dangers today. And we find, staring down the tunnel of history, that this has been the case. Pastors that used to stand against pragmatic practices are now embracing such practices without embarrassment. Churches that used to warn others of the dangers of worldliness and sinful compromise are now crying out that such preaching is legalistic and too judgmental. So the model that has caused the downfall of many is if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. As long as it works, do it. So the practical lesson given by the Apostle Paul is, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And this is why I'm preaching this series, so we can know the subtle attacks of the enemies, so we can know exactly what God expects of us. Listen, our past experiences can't keep us right with God only an abiding relationship with Christ grounded in the truth and His Word can keep us right with God. So we're about to celebrate 60 years Calvary Baptist Church in Yucca Valley. So what? So what? That doesn't matter if we don't keep our nose in the book And our faces pointed toward the ground in prayer. We are liable to end up in places we would never have imagined if we don't stay true to God's word. So let's not pat ourselves on the back too quickly. Let's not point ourselves out, our fingers out that way, puffing out our chest, thinking, well, we've got it all figured out. Let us take heed to ourselves, lest we fall. God-fearing men and God-fearing churches are not exempt from falling, And this also teaches us to be careful that we hold all men and all ministries up to the standards of God's word rather than following them because they've been faithful in the past. So you have a favorite author. You have a favorite online preacher. You have a favorite TV minister. You better hold them up to the truth of God's word. You better search the scriptures to see if what he's saying is true. Just because God has used him in the past doesn't mean that he'll never fall. Nadab and Abihu teach us that. All men are men at best. And we only follow men to the degree that they follow Christ. And then the fifth and final lesson. Death will always come as a result to our disobedience to God's word death will always come as a result to our disobedience to god's word think about it what happened to adam and eve when they disobeyed god the bible says they died spiritually they died and then eventually physically they died what happened to the 3000 in exodus 32 who worshiped the golden calf and did not want to commit their hearts to the lord they died What happened to Nadab and Abihu? They died. Oh, there's that whisper again. But pastor, that's Old Testament. Okay, New Testament. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They died. What happened to Herod when he gave not God the glory? He died. And what does God say about the church in Sardis? Jesus says, you have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. You're busy doing Christian things, but your garments are defiled. Your worship is corrupt. You are dead in the sight of God. You don't have the blessing of God's spirit. You're void of God's presence. You are offering strange fire, but God is not accepting it. That's American Christianity. We have a name that we're alive planning all these churches, all these ministries. We even have Gideon Bibles in every hotel room. But we are dead. I'll prove it to you. Our nation has more so-called gospel Christian influence than ever before. Yet the moral framework of our society is getting worse and worse by the day. What's the problem? I'll tell you what the problem is. Fun worship is the problem. Clowns and dunk tanks are the problem. Watering down the gospel is the problem. More music Less preaching is the problem. Preaching feel-good sermons rather than pressing on sin and judgment and hell. Stop blaming the Democrats and the politicians. Start blaming Christians. You do realize Jesus places the blame on us. Matthew 5. We are to be lights of the world. We are to be the salt of the earth. But our light today is being hid under the bushel of worldliness and compromise. And our savor of salt has been lost. So it's being trampled under the feet of men. Our disobedience to God's word is killing our evangelistic efforts. Oh, but pastor, you didn't hear the ministry has led 10,000 people to the Lord in the last three months. Hogwash, where are they? Don't give me that junk. I get so many prayer letters of missionaries. We led so many people to to pray the sinner's prayer. They never come back to be baptized. They never join the church. They just go back to their sins. That's strange fire. It's a strange gospel. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Our disobedience to God's word is killing the purity and the unity of our churches. It's killing our effectiveness in the culture. You do realize that the world mocks Christianity, and they don't mock Christianity because they're holy. They mock Christianity because they're stupid, and they're dead, and there's no difference in the world. Leonard Ravenhill, you're familiar with him? Great preacher, evangelist, revivalist, contemporary of A.W. Tozer. If you're not familiar with him, you need to be. He said, the tragedy is that we have too many dead men in the pulpits giving out too many dead sermons to too many dead people. He said that years ago. And I agree with him. We haven't seen true revival in decades. Why? Why? could there be a correlation between our strange fire and lack of revival and again don't give me this nonsense well didn't you hear about the osbury revival we're going to talk about that later give me a break students meeting in campus and all they're doing is getting stirred in their emotion by song little preaching little even mentioning of jesus and sin and the gospel and yet we call it a revival give me a break That's Phineasim. That's not true revival. Do you really think God is going to bless us as we continue offering Him strange fire? Worship that is contrary to His word and will. So what's the solution? Well, the messages to the church in Revelation teach us that the only solution is our sincere repentance and our sincere desire to obey God's word. That's the message to the churches in Revelation. Repent. Turn from your wicked way. Acknowledge how you have fallen and then hear what the Spirit of God says in His word. My time is up, but I hope Your heart will be stirred to pray. Pray that our nation might be brought to a place of repentance and a place of having true faith in God's holy word. Pray that God's churches might be purged and purified for His namesake. Strange fire. Strange fire.